And as you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We are continuing to march our way through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're beginning a new mini-series here this morning. And you'll notice it there, it's on the screen behind me. And our focus has been throughout this book of Ephesians on how the church brings glory to God, how God is deserving of glory. Soli Deo Gloria has been our year-long theme. The glory of God alone is our focus. And this morning we see that God's glory is greatly magnified through the sanctification of His people, through the growth, the spiritual maturing of His people. Over the last few decades, um, we have experienced in, in the church uh, a movement that has been very focused on the growth of the church. It's been actually entitled the Church Growth Movement. And for the most part, this movement has been fixated upon growth numerically, focused on how to build the church in terms of numbers and how do we get more people in the doors and how do we kind of have these, these massive, large-scale congregations and services. And a lot of the focus has been on good leadership principles that you can employ and how to pastor more like a CEO, how to use good administration or attractional techniques to get people in the door and keep them happy with the show that you're putting on. A lot of the growth has been driven by systems and fads. And truthfully, as we kind of step back and we've had an opportunity to inspect kind of the the church as a result of the church growth growth movement, a lot of people have determined that the kind of growth that the church experienced was superficial at best. The old saying, I think, rings true that it's possible to be a mile wide but only an inch deep. We've always believed in the life of this church, one of the foundational principles in planting and launching this church almost eight years ago, we believed that if we took care of the depth that God would take care of the breadth. That our job wasn't to somehow inflate the numbers or be overly concerned about the, the number of people who attend the church. We believed that God would bring the people into the church who he wanted here. That our job was to be faithful, to grow in depth and in love for Jesus Christ. It's amazing that so many people spend so much time trying to develop a church growth philosophy. When you come to the Bible, God actually gives us the blueprint for church growth. And here we see in the book of Ephesians, as we launch into chapter 4, that's exactly what Paul is going to unfold for us. He's going to show us what true church growth looks like according to God's divine plan and strategy. Over the next few weeks in particular, I want to give you the formula, okay? The formula for church growth, and it's really, really simple. Here's what it looks like. We're going to see this unpacked over the next three weeks. Holy Spirit unity plus Holy Spirit diversity equals Holy Spirit maturity, Let me say that again. Holy Spirit unity plus Holy Spirit diversity equals Holy Spirit maturity. All of this driven by the Spirit of God. You see, God is focused not primarily on the quantity of disciples, but on the quality of discipleship. Our sanctification, our growth, not just, listen, this is so important this morning, not just individually, but as one body. God has, Paul, excuse me, has used this metaphor of us being a body or one new man, and he's going to carry that metaphor through the, the next 16, 17 verses to show how this new man needs to grow and mature into de- and develop into the body of Christ that God is calling it to be. And here, in our text this morning, verses 1 through 6, Paul addresses the key concept in church growth, the concept of unity. You see, nothing has the power to destroy and hinder growth like division. Divide and conquer has long been a very familiar and popular military strategy. Webster's Dictionary actually defines that as to make a group of people disagree and fight with one another so that they will not join together in a common cause and mission. We've all seen this at play, haven't we, in various points in our lives, various places in our lives? We've seen this play out, this rule, divide and conquer in politics, Some of us have seen this play out in very personal ways in marriages. Some of us have utilized this strategy in our parenting techniques. 
Sadly, some of us have seen this play out in very dramatic form in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. And if it's true that nothing destroys and hinders growth in the church like division, then it is also true that nothing has the power to produce and increase growth like unity. So much can be accomplished in and through the church of Jesus Christ where we are as a family, a unified front where unity thrives and is maintained and is fought for. And that is at the very heart of what Paul wants to press into our hearts and into the life of this church this morning. You see, if we are to experience increased growth, we must maintain the strength of our unity. And that's what Paul says in the first six verses. Let's read it together. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you can't see just at a surface level reading of this passage that Paul is deeply concerned about the unity of the church, then I would suggest you will see very little else in the Word of God. If we're going to experience increased growth, we must maintain the strength of our unity together, and that begins by first recognizing this, that we are united in our shared calling. We are united in our shared calling. We see this right out of the gates in verse 1, where Paul begins by saying, I therefore. Now just pause there for a minute. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, what it's there for. Haha, it's good, huh? See, Paul is reaching back into all that he has expressed and explained and expounded upon in chapters 1 through 3. We've talked about this in the past few weeks, that the book of Ephesians is essentially divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 deals with doctrine, it deals with theology, and chapters 4 through 6 deal with practical Christian living, how that's fleshed out in the life of the church. And then we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, sandwiched in between there is Paul's prayer for power, that we might be strengthened in our inner being so that the living out of our theology might even be possible. There are two parts to the book of Ephesians. You can think of it like this. The first part focuses on what God has done. The second part focuses on what we now do. This shift has been expressed in many ways by many different people. It's said that it moves us from doctrine to duty or from creed to conduct, from the Christian's wealth to the Christian's walk, from exposition to exhortation, from the indicative to the imperative. I really like just this simple De description that it moves us from theology to practice. Now, some of us, when we kind of consider this breakdown and, and, and we consider where we, where we are or maybe on the spectrum of theology and practice, some of us lean really heavily on the theology part. You know, we could live in chapters one through three. Just tell me more about the riches of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, take me deeper there. I could live there my entire life, but not live any of it out in real life. Some of us are on the opposite end of the spectrum, where we find ourselves saying, uh, who cares about all the theology? Theology, that's, that doesn't really matter. What, what, what do I do? Just in, just tell it to me straight. What do I do? But here, you see, in Paul's example, he actually is instructing us that it is impossible to live the Christian life without theology, and theology is utterly worthless unless it is lived out. You see, we need to embrace this principle in our Christian life, that belief radically impacts and transforms behavior. The two things are intimately connected, and they are not to be divorced in the mind of God. The renewal of our minds through theology and scripture leads to the transformation of our lives. Just think back to what we have been learning in the book of Ephesians thus far. I mean, Paul has put so much on display of the goodness of the glory of God. I mean, he's talked about the wealth of God's grace that is lavished upon us. He's talked about how God has sovereignly chosen us and predestined us in love to be adopted as sons through faith in Christ Jesus. 
He's talked about the mystery of his will that has been unfolded to unite all things in heaven and on earth. He's shown us that we are saved, not by our works, but by grace through faith, that we were once dead and we've been made alive. He's shown us his reconciling power in demonstrating it through the church, bringing together two irreconcilable people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus Christ tearing down the dividing wall and uniting the two into one new man. He's prayed that we would be strengthened by the Spirit who fills us, making us listen into the new temple of God here and now. And now he wants to bring all of that to bear, listen, on every single area of our lives. Every area. Our careers, our families, our marriages, our daily activities our relationships. You see, what we believe about what God has done must shape our lives. That's what Paul is teaching us here. And this is where our calling truly begins, by understanding who God is and what he has done. What God has done is the foundation for what we now do for him. And this is so crucial to understand if we are going to grow together in unity, we see, listen, that the moral imperatives that are all throughout the scripture are always based on gospel indicatives. We do this because God has already done this. Our behavior is in response to what God has done so powerfully. Grace produces works. And Paul is exhorting the church to now walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And just consider that word walk for a minute. Walk is a a word we often use in the Christian life. We talk about, you know, some people consider it more like Christianese, right? How's your walk, man? How's your walk doing? You know, my my, my talk game's real strong, but my walk game's real weak right now. And it can almost sound cliche when we say it and when we use it, our Christian walk. But I just want you to know that Paul here is really embracing and adopting in the New Testament an Old Testament metaphor for living your life. It's all throughout the Old Testament. This is such a beautiful picture of what it means to live your life because it implies so much of what it is to be on a faith journey. We talk about the importance of this in the culture of our church all the time. In fact, we just had on one of the announcements, um, Harvest 101, the whole point of Harvest 101 is to walk through a class that teaches us what it means to be a mature disciple of Christ, and one of the key tenets, the core principles of that is a disciple of Jesus Christ is somebody, mature disciple, somebody who worships Christ, and listen, who walks with Christ, and then who works for Christ. This refers to a life that aligns with our newfound calling, that is rooted in our newfound identity, and it's so vitally important to grasp this in the Christian life if we're ever going to enjoy any sense of fruitfulness and effectiveness in the Christian life. And there's three ways I think we can walk from this text. We can just learn really quickly. Let me just give them to you really quickly. Here's our shared calling. First, walk with clarity. Walk with clarity. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. No, our shared calling flows from our shared identity together. You have to know who you are. More importantly, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians, you have to know whose you are. And Paul uses the term over and over again. You are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are. You're not defined by the things you do. You're not defined by the career you have. You're not defined by the mistakes you've made. You're not defined by the success you enjoy in your life, whatever it may be. You are defined, if you are a follower of Christ, as somebody who is in Christ. He is the one who defines who you are, and therefore how you live. Your behavior is grounded in that identity. Now, we use that concept, listen, that behavior is grounded in identity in a number of ways in life. A number of different spheres of life will do this. We'll often look at each other and say, you're an adult, right? Then act like it, right? In other words, let your behavior conform to your identity. You say you're an adult. You are an adult. At least it appears that way. 
Now act in accordance with who you are. Oftentimes, remember, you know, growing up playing sports, you, you, you hear the coach do a, do a rally with the players and they'll get them all together and they'll say, you guys are champions. Now get out there and win. In other words, behave in accordance with your identity. You're champions. This is who you are. Now go out there and do. Be who you are. And when it comes, listen, to the church of Jesus Christ, listen, here's what we need to hear. You are a Christ follower. You are in Christ. Now hear hear the Holy Spirit saying, now live like it. Now live like it. Be who you are already in Christ. Be practically who you are positionally. You see, what he's done for us is who we are to become. And Paul, I love it here. He speaks to his identity throughout Scripture in a number of different ways. But here, here it's so vivid. Notice these words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now just hear those words again. A prisoner for the Lord. He's not a prisoner of Rome. Do you catch that? Paul right now, he writes from a prison cell. He is chained at this moment. Chained to a Roman soldier. This is how he's living his life. But as he thinks about what defines him, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm a prisoner, I'm an incarcerated individual. He reminds us how he views himself all the time. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Now, most scholars pick up on the reality that what Paul seems to be doing here is kind of giving a dual meaning. He's saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, meaning I am a prisoner of Christ. He uses this kind of language there. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. But we also understand that he is also communicating that the reason he is where he is is because of how he's lived for Christ, right? I'm a prisoner because I have followed Christ. I'm a prisoner because I have found my identity in him and I have lived faithfully for him and this is where it's taken me. I love that Paul isn't having a pity party for himself. In fact, I think Paul took great pride in defining himself as a prisoner for Christ. So how did Paul get here? Yes, being faithful, that, that's, that's true. He was a faithful Christian. He did what God called him to do. But can you just, can you hear this? The reason Paul is here is because he chose to die to himself. He, he chose to live, listen, this is so important for identity, not for himself. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, for your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. How many of us, listen, we identify ourselves by what we do or who we are on our, in our own strength and we live like that. Paul says, I'm not my own. I am in Christ. He is my sole identity and my behavior is shaped by that. Paul lived with such clarity Let me encourage you, Christian, maybe it's time for you to begin to live with greater clarity in terms of your identity. You too, I trust, can say that you are a prisoner for the Lord. You are fully surrendered and submitted to him. He is your master. He is in control of your life. And if that's true, then you'll do this secondly. You'll walk with urgency. Walk with urgency. See, not only do we walk with clarity, we must begin to walk with urgency. I wonder, have you ever walked with somebody who's a slow walker? That sounds like a Seinfeld episode, doesn't it? The slow walker, you know what I'm talking about, that person you're walking with, and you're like, man, do you, do you have anywhere to be? Like, seriously, what are we doing here? Where are we going? Just a little bit quicker. Some of us are slow walkers in our Christian life. Seemingly aimless, purposeless, no sense of going somewhere, no sense of having something to do. And can I encourage you this morning that if that's the way you are walking in your Christian life, you really misunderstand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be given a mission. It is to be pushed into a certain kind of living with a certain kind of job. And Paul here, he knows his identity. He's so clear on that. He knows the identity of the church, and that's why he can say these words. Look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word can be translated like this. I exhort you, or some translations have it saying this. I plead with you. It's as if Paul is grabbing them you know, by the face and shaking them and saying, you need to hear me. If you understand who you are, you've got to get going. 
Some of us aren't just walking slowly. Some of us have decided we're going to sit down and take a break. Some of us, some of us, listen, are actually asleep. And Paul is going to talk about this later in Romans, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4. He also mentions it in Romans. Paul is actually going to look to the church and see the, the apathy and the lethargy, spiritually speaking, in the life of the church. And he's going to tell them, wake up, arise, oh sleeper, right? That's not a good thing. We need to be reminded, listen, that we cannot be stagnant in our pursuit of Jesus Christ and on mission for Jesus Christ. And he urges the church, why, why? Because it's possible, isn't this true? It's so possible to know and believe all the truths he's expounded in chapters one through three and yet choose to not put them into practice like chapters four through six. It's possible to have a right theology but not a right living and for Paul, as he saw, listen, we just we see this in his life. Paul realized there's too much at stake. That there's eternity at stake here. Faithfulness to God, standing before him one day. Paul realized, Paul lived in light of eternity. He realized one day he would stand and give an account to the Lord. And he wasn't wasting time. He wasn't worried about what was going to happen if he pursued Christ harder. Listen, nothing, listen, you will lose nothing of significance if you choose to pursue Christ with greater intensity. You will lose plenty if you choose not to. We need to have a renewed urgency in our lives sometimes. We need it kind of re-injected into us. And I'm guilty of this too. I get, I get apathetic. I get lethargic. I get spiritually lazy sometimes. We need to be reminded, listen, we've got to forget about where we failed. Some of you in here, you've been failing miserably. My wife showed me a, a little kind of saying. I'm going to butcher it. I just remembered it on, on the spot. Let's trust that the Spirit of God's going to use it. <laughs> She showed me this, this quote that said, you know, my New Year's resolution is, is our starting on February 1st. January was a free month trial. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, it's, it's clever, right? But you know what? Sometimes I, I really feel like we failed for so long at doing what we wanted to do, what we hoped to do, that all of a sudden we let it continue to spiral out of control. And so we never actually do anything because we're so caught up in how we failed. We just need to be reminded, you know, Paul says this in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forget about, look, forget about how successful you've been. Forget about how much you've failed. And start fixing your gaze upon what lies ahead and what you can still be and do for Jesus. That's what we need to hear in our lives. Get back up, Right? We tell this to our kids all the time. You're going to fall, literally, physically, but metaphorically in life. The question is, are you willing to get back up and keep running? We need to walk with clarity. We need to walk with urgency. And lastly here, we need to walk with consistency. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk worthy. This is a comprehensive expression that encompasses how we live in every aspect of our daily lives. In essence, Paul is calling us to put everything in our lives under the microscope of the gospel and to view it in light of that, to see it in light of the gospel. How would the gospel call me to live in every single area of my life? We need to guard against having what has been called uh, in the, the Christian kind of philosophical world, the secular sacred divide. A lot of Christians live with the secular sacred divide. They, they look at their life and they view parts of their life through a secular lens. You know, this is how I have to live in my work context. This is how I have to live in this context of my life. And then in certain areas of their life, they have a sacred perspective. So, you know, this is where I live like a follower of Christ, over here, in these areas, in these compartments of my life. But the Bible gives no liberty to have any kind of sacred, secular divide in the Christian life. There is only the sacred. Everything you do has eternal significance and value. Everything you do, listen, is under the watchful eye of God and can either disarm and shame him, or disarm, excuse me, and shame him, or honor and bring glory to him. 
everything we do in this life needs to be thought through. And listen, as we think through the big things in our life and we learn to think through some of the little things, you want to know what begins to happen? Some of you are like, well, that's going to be exhausting if I have to weigh every single part of my life. Listen, I get it. I get it. And I don't think that's, an essential, it's, that's even possible. But what I know is that the more you pay attention to it, the more it becomes instinctive in your life. The more it becomes habitual to simply stop and pause and just ask the question, what will glorify God here? What will honor him? God's spirit lives in us. And we're reminded throughout this text and the previous sections that we can do nothing without the spirit of God empowering us, equipping us, and enabling us to increasingly walk and live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. God in his grace has lavishly given his spirit to us to accomplish and to become what he is calling us to be. We are united in our shared calling. We must also be united in this. Secondly, united in our shared conduct. Paul now kind of turns a corner and begins to zero in on how we can do this a little bit more specifically. He explains the kind of conduct that characterizes this walk. He looks at how we treat one another in the family of God, and he shows us those things that are essential for how we can function together in unity. This is ultimately, you should go without saying, the character of Jesus Christ that is formed in us by the power of his spirit. And nobody exemplifies this kind of living more greatly than Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called. Verse 2 says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let's just take these one at a time and see how they might apply to us and help continue to foster greater unity. First, he says, with all humility. Notice this is all encompassing. All of these things are to characterize our life at all times. There's no situation in your life in which you are not called to exemplify humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Okay? No situation. There's perhaps nothing more destructive and divisive to community than pride and arrogance. Scripture is replete with warnings against pride. The New Testament and the Old Testament both affirm over and over that God opposes the proud. He actively resists and pushes against those who are proud, but he instead exalts the humble. He blesses the humble. Now just, just stop. That, that should be enough right now to force us to our knees in humility and to call out to God and say, God, make me a humble man. Because don't you realize, listen, Christian or non-Christian, if you are a proud person, God is actively pushing against you and opposing you. But if you are humble, God is longing to exalt and bless you. Don't you want to be about what God blesses? I want, I want more blessing from God. More blessing from God. My prayers, I haven't read through this, is God, God, strip me of my pride. Make me a humble man. Rebuke me, correct me, expose my pride over and over again because God, I want your blessing. I need your blessing. I think of Jacob who wrestled with God and he would not let go until God blessed him. May that be our hearts before God when it comes to a heart of humility. Isaiah 66, verse 2, on the screen behind me, listen to what God says to Israel. He says this, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, listen, he's talking about, look at how great God is. Look at how sovereign he is. Look how far above us he is. And this is awesome, that God, the creator of all things, the one who sovereignly controls all things, he would look to us, but look to the one whom he looks. This is the one to whom I will look, he says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one who sees how big God is and how small he is. It's imperative that we understand what humility truly is if we want to be blessed by God, if we really want to experience humility in our lives. It's been said, and I can't track down who said it first. I know C.S. Lewis has said it, and it's been regurgitated a number of different times by a number of different people, but humility is often defined like this, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. See, for unity to exist, we must be a people who are selfless, living for the good of others, and our problem is that our sinful nature longs to look at self. 
It's inherent in our brokenness, in our fallenness. We long to be the master of our own domain, to be the kings of our own castle, to sit on the thrones of our own lives and hearts. But we live, too, in a culture that is fixated on self. I don't know if there's a more easy example of this than the culture that's being created by our social media craze. Some of you are tuning me out. You're like, I don't want to hear this. Don't go there. I'm about to. I mean, part of the social media craze is the selfie culture, isn't it? Like, people take a selfie. What's the point of that? You, right? Is it about me? Look at me. I was recently reading a book, and they're now beginning to do these studies on how social media and how our cell phones, and related to social media, but in other ways as well, all the data is coming in. You know, we're finally moving to a place where we can begin to assess data that's been collected over time now, because it's such a relatively new craze with the technology boom and how fast, fast things progress. We really don't see the damage sometimes things are doing. And, and by the way, I'm Look, I'm thankful for cell phones. I'm even thankful for social media, and God can use those things in wonderful ways. But the damage that some of these things are doing to us is now coming to the forefront. And some of the data is demonstrating in very powerful and persuasive ways that this culture, especially the the social media culture, it it is so damaging to people's self-esteem and self-perception. It is producing such massive amounts of insecurities, anxiety, and fear because the whole culture is defined by trying to communicate to people who you are, what you look like, and you define yourself by how many likes you have, how many positive comments you've received. Or you begin to assess and determine your worth or value based on what you see of others. Well, I don't have that. I'm not like that. My life doesn't look that good. And you see, all of this, all of this is so inherently focused on the individual, on the self. Our phones and our digital age has done so many wonderful things for us, but it's been doing so many destructive things for us, it has perpetuated the myth that you are the center of the universe. And you see, pride means to be filled with self. That's what pride is. It's to be filled with self and humility, as Tony Morita says, humility is to be filled with God. Selfish ambition motivates so much of what we do, and this is in such contrast to what we see for the Christian follower. We see this displayed most of all in Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. He says this, a familiar verse, listen, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he goes on to show how this is exactly what Jesus did in the cross. He displayed the greatest humility humanity has ever seen, that the world has ever known. And he calls us to do the same. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Certainly, if we embody this, this will perpetuate unity in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Notice, secondly, he talks about gentleness. Some versions of the Bible translate this as meekness. It is directly related to humility, and this is, by the way, one of the surest signs of humility. A gentle spirit, a meek disposition. Now, meekness, contrary to what many in the world believe, is not synonymous with weakness. It is not the display of timidity or fear. It's not some deficiency in courage. The idea here is to be mild-spirited or self-controlled in contrast to being vindictive and vengeful. The word is often used in ancient texts to describe a, a wild animal that had been tamed. Think of a young wild horse All of this pent-up power and energy and yet no ability to control itself. It's just wild and just lashes out all the time. Impossible to, to ride. 
But when it is tamed, what you see is this picture of an animal that is so much power packed into it, and yet it is bridled, and it is easily controlled. It is tempered. You might say it like this. It is all of the power, but under total control. In the Christian life, it is tempering strength for the good of others. And listen, in the Christian life, we are filled. Here's here's what you have to see. We are filled with the mighty, awesome, unfathomable power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, dwells in us, empowers us. And yet with this power, listen, we can do so much damage if it is not tempered properly with gentleness. power under control of the Spirit of God. The gentleness of the strong whose gentleness is strength under control. By the way, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That means, listen, that means that the the more the Holy Spirit is at work within you and the more you are yielding to the Spirit of God in your life, the more gentle you will become. This is so necessary for maintaining unity in the life of the church for a number of reasons, but we see this played out. Paul plays this out in Ephesians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6. Just listen to this. You can flip back if you want. It's just one page, probably in your Bible, one or two pages. In Galatians 6, he says these words in verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit, notice this, of, come on, say it with me, gentleness, gentleness. You see, so often in the body of Christ, you talk about what can be disunifying. We see people living in sin. We see people in their spiritual immaturity or spiritual rebellion resisting the word of the Lord. And if we're not careful, we can go up to people with a harshness And we can speak the truth in a way that is actually hurtful to them. We can walk up to people in the church and say, what are you doing, you idiot? Don't you know that God is holy and you need to start walking like it? Some of you, listen, this is a real issue. Some of you in this room, I've spoken to some of you, have been deeply hurt by Christians, maybe who even meant well and said what was true, but they approached you with such a mean-spiritedness, such a harshness, such a proud, arrogant manner. And it pushed you not kind of into the Lord, it actually pushed you away from the Lord. And that is not to be the approach that we have. In fact, the more sometimes, this sadly, this happens from the people who consider themselves to be the most spiritually mature. But the Word of God tells us that those who are spiritually mature need to be able to demonstrate the greatest of, of kind of meekness and gentleness. I mean, think of Moses. Moses is referred to before Jesus as the meekest man who ever walked the face of the earth. This dynamic, spirit-filled, God-ordained leader of the nation of Israel, million people underneath his command and control, was so meek and gentle. We go gently to one another. I just wonder, maybe some of you in here, you actually need to do that for somebody in this church. You need to go to somebody that you know is not walking faithfully with the Lord. You see sin in the life, but you've been timid and fearful about approaching them. And God says, no, you need to go. You need to go and you need to help them. You need to love them, but you need to go with gentleness and meekness. I think of Jesus who exemplified this better than anybody. Listen to what it says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Aren't you so thankful that whenever you sin, whenever you wander as a sheep we're prone to do, and you come back to the shepherd of your soul, he doesn't hit you with the staff? He gently calls you to himself, and he says, come to me, I love you, and I will take care for you, and I forgive you. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be unified together and functioning together in unity. Notice next to he says, we're called to have patience. Now, this is challenging for us in our instant culture, isn't it? We've got to instant everything. I mean, I'm still, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days of dial-up 
internet. Can you just pause? Can you hear that sound? Can you hear that high-pitched squeal of your computer as it tries desperately to connect to the interverse? I mean, now I get frustrated if I have to wait more than five seconds for Netflix to load. Some of you are old enough to remember when you had to go to the library, pick up a book to find information. <laughs> I'm glad you can laugh at that. It's good. <laughs> you know, impatience so often characterizes our lives together. And I think we're easily inclined towards impatience with one another. We, we, we want people to be where we're at, to understand what we understand, and we're impatient when they don't respond the way we think they should or on the timeline that we've set for them. You know, I think that's why Paul, he writes to the, the church in, in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, I can never say that word right. And he, he charges the leaders as they're shepherding the people, you know, the, the leaders who are intimately involved in the details of everybody's lives and are trying to care for them and trying to lead them in truth. And he says these words to the, the leaders. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, it's giving different categories of people and how you're to respond to different kinds of people. You know, shepherding is not a one-size-fits-all approach. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. But then he puts this umbrella over all of it. But be patient with them all. Be patient. We have a tendency to have a short fuse with those who are struggling, those who are hurting, and those who are resisting. And that's why patience forms a natural pair with this next concept, bearing with one another in love. In fact, it may actually just be simply explaining what patience is, what it's supposed to look like played out in the life of the church. The call to be patient is the call to be long-suffering. Actually, the Greek word for the word patience is two Greek words put together, the word long and the word suffering. And it paints a very vivid picture for us, doesn't it? Instead of having a short fuse, we are to be long-suffering, to be enduring with one another, willing to endure with challenging individuals, willing to endure with frustrating individuals, willing to endure with rebellious individuals. The, the idea here of bearing with one another reminds us that we are called to be sticking together for the long haul, that when things get hard and people get on your nerves, you don't just get up and get out of here. If you do, you're just gonna go to another church and then the people there are gonna get on your nerves. And then you go to another church, and they're going to get on your nerves too. And pretty soon, hopefully, you wake up to realize that the problem is less about them and more about you. We're always going to be stuck with people that we clash with, that we don't agree with, that get under our skin a little bit. And the call to live in unity is a call to be patient and bearing with one another, long-suffering with one another. Some translations actually saying putting up with one another. And you know what? This is impossible without love. You notice how Paul just puts that on the end. In one sense, all of these things are impossible without love. It is surely impossible to be patient. To me, it is impossible to be patient with one another without love. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. That's, by the way, in the context not of a marriage ceremony, but the body of Christ will often get easily angered by others and will say something like, I, I just, I can't put up with that person anymore. I can't stand to be around them. But the word of God says you must put up with them. And by the way, they must put up with you. Praise God. <laughs> Bearing with one another teaches us and reminds us, listen, that if there is anyone, anyone that should not be the recipient of patience, of long-suffering, of being born with, it's us. But God in his love demonstrates that he has been so patient that he bears with us in our foolishness every day. Think about this. God is long-suffering with us. I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't look at us in our sinfulness every day and say, I'm so sick of you, I'm not going to put up with you any longer. 
You know what helps us kind of exhibit this kind of patience? It is first remembering that truth, that this is how God treats us. And so we therefore must treat others in like manner. But here's another maybe helpful way, uh, supplementary to that. I think sometimes we get so frustrated and angered with other people is because we forget that we were once like them. You know, we can look at people and, and, and in their spiritual immaturity, like, I, I mean, I can't believe you don't know these things yet, when meanwhile you learned them five minutes ago. What do you, what do you mean you don't know how to pray through the Bible? Are you kidding me? Like, come on, grow up already. Uh, you just learned that. We can so quickly forget that we were once immature, that we were once maybe more frustrating than we are now, and... Yet others bore with us, they worked with us, they helped us, they were kind to us, they were patient with us. Love is truly what binds us together. And you know, this is what Jesus said to his disciples and what he modeled for them in John 13, 34 and 35. He said after he had served the disciples so faithfully in love, sacrificed, got on his knees and washed their feet, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is one of the greatest apologetics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love of God's people for one another. It is an active pursuit of the common good of the people around you. It is looking intentionally for ways to serve them and to sacrifice for their good. This is what Jesus teaches us with his life. This is what he teaches us through the gospel. And this is what fosters and propels the unity in the body of Christ. And notice verse 3 there, that this really is the central point of all that Paul is saying. That we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Did you notice the, the word there that he uses? He says, eager to maintain, not attain. You see, we don't actually produce the unity. We don't have to manufacture the unity. The unity has already been brought about by the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his spirit that indwells us. You see, the burden is off us to produce unity. We are simply required to maintain what God has already attained for us. And this is what Paul reminds us of in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Let's just be reminded of this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and we're reminded as we read those words, listen, that the unity he attained for us came at a great cost. Our calling is to walk in, to maintain the unity that Christ accomplished and the Spirit brings us into. But that doesn't mean we can sit back passively in this pursuit. Paul says to eagerly maintain it. Making every effort, in other words, to fight for the unity that Christ has accomplished. We diligently seek it, not just when it's easy. Listen, this is to be our conduct, but this is to be our commitment to one another. We need to be a people who see what God has done for us, has brought us into unity with himself and one another, and we need to covenant together to deeply commit to one another. That Listen, regardless of what happens in our relationships, we will fight for unity. We will fight for unity so that we can show the world the love of God in Christ Jesus. How committed are we to be to this? Paul chooses a really unique word here. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond there is so, so significant. There's an allusion to actually Paul's current condition. This is the same root word of the word that Paul uses to be bound in prison. I just want you to picture that scene again. Paul is bound right now to a Roman prisoner. He can't go anywhere. 
It doesn't matter what this guy does to him, how he treats him, and believe me, he probably wasn't treating him too great most of the time. The ridicule, the abuse, the unfriendliness, the impatience, all of that. Paul says, in the same way that I am bound to this man by my chains, so you two are bound together in peace with one another. Don't leave when it gets hard. You lean in. You don't flee when things get challenging in relationships. You fight, not each other. Paul pleads with the church to be bound together in peace and love. Oh, how we need to fight for these kind of relationships. If we practice these things, we will experience and enjoy a sweet, gospel-centered, spirit-filled unity together. And I just, I just need to exhort you as a church family, listen, some of you are in relationships that are unhealthy. Some of you are in relationships where there is no reconciliation. Some of you are living in alienation from other people because of offenses and hurt. And while I don't pretend things can be solved overnight, I know what the Word of God says. And even in light of communion this morning, the Word of God would say, listen, if you come to the altar to give a gift to the Lord, if you come into the place of worship and you want to give to the Lord a sacrifice of worship, a sacrifice of praise, and yet you know your brother has something against you, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, listen, take your gift and set it at the side of the altar. Go and find your brother and be reconciled. Something that's going to take a whole lot of what we've been praying about or looking at here, humility and patience and gentleness. But some of you, listen, before you worship the Lord, before you come to the Lord's table, you actually need to go and find somebody and be reconciled to them. Can I urge you, please take that seriously in your life. This must be the constant practice as we seek to be like Jesus, as we seek to embody the word of God, to repent and seek forgiveness for one another and be reconciled to one another. And if that is to be the constant experience in this place, we must finally be united in our shared confession. And Paul here in verses four through six reminds us that we need to be united around something. We're not to experience unity, listen, just for unity's sake. I think of a, a rally Maybe it's a, a pro-life rally where people gather together and they unify around a common cause, a common issue, or a common belief. And listen, people unite around all kinds of things. Some things meaningful, some things trivial. The question we need to ask here in the body of Christ is what are we actually unified around? What object unites us? You see, unity is a byproduct of focusing on something that is more important, of something that is of, of great value, of great priority in our lives. And the strength of our unity is actually determined by the value of the object we rally around. And the appeal to unity is immediately followed by a confession of faith that ultimately presents the unifying principles for the family of God. Paul says this in verse 4 through 6, there is, just notice how many times he says one, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Some have seen this as a creedal-like statement or a statement of faith, so to speak. Some have seen this as maybe an early church hymn. It certainly appears to be a, a grouping of confessional statements, doctrinal beliefs and convictions that Paul maybe even cherry-picks from different places and combines them all into one because of their unified focus on unity. And here we're reminded, listen, that virtue, all of those character attributes and conduct, the humility, the gentleness, the, the patience, the bearing with one another in love, all of those things help us maintain unity, but beliefs are the basis of our unity. You know, contrary to popular opinion, holding firmly to doctrine and beliefs isn't divisive in the body of Christ. There's some people who say, well, well, doctrine just divides the church. Doctrine has been destructive in the church, and we need to, to loosen up the reins and not be so concerned about what people believe and, you know, tolerance and yada, 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 yada. 
Doctrine isn't divisive in the body of Christ. It's actually unifying according to God's word. And I understand that we can hold doctrine in divisive ways. I believe that. I've seen that even in my own life. And that often certain doctrinal positions can be divisive because they're unpalatable to our contemporary culture and sometimes our contemporary church ears. But God has actually given doctrine to unify us, to strengthen us in unity, to propel us forward. The truth is that Christians all over the world, you know, they agree on far more than they disagree on. It's one of the sweetest gifts of my life to be able to go to places like Nepal and Haiti and Romania and to stand arm in arm with brothers and sisters in Christ and with joy and unity lift our voices and worship and praise and adoration of the one God and King and the one Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, we have different languages, and yes, we have different foods and clothings and customs, and yet we worship and fellowship and unity and joy because we both believe, listen, we both believe that 2,000 years ago, God became a man, and he walked this earth in perfection, that he offered himself up as a perfect spotless lamb, a sacrificial substitution, that he died a death for sinners, that he endured the wrath of God, that he walked out of the grave alive and is exalted to the right hand of the Father, where right now he rules and reigns on high. And that is what unites us. We all believe for the most part, right, that if you're truly a follower of Christ, that salvation is by faith, that Scripture is the Word of God, that Jesus is God, that the Trinity is real. You know, there's a classic saying that I think is so helpful. It's this, that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. You can say it like this in putting it in more of an action form. Major on the majors, minor on the minors, and in all things, love. That statement shows us how it's possible to have unity, listen, not just globally, but locally in this body of Christ. Do you realize that not all of us in this room believe all the exact same things? Some of you are shocked by that. There are little nuances of our theology and little disagreements that we have about secondary issues. But we can function in love and in unity together because of the core truths that hold us together. You might be inclined to think or to say something like, well, the easiest way to achieve unity is to sacrifice doctrine, but I'd say that that is a shallow unity at best and an unbiblical one at worst. The better way to maintain unity is to sacrifice selfishness and uphold truth. We are united by our belief in God and in what God has done for us. That's what Paul reminds us of in all of these one statements here. There are seven times here that Paul uses the word one and he is emphasizing over and over and over that unity. Some even believe, you know, seven being the number of perfection in the scriptures that Paul is emphasizing how important the unity of the body of Christ is. And of these, three of them, I don't know if you notice this, they highlight the triune God. They actually highlight the Trinity. There is one spirit, verse four says, in verse 5, there was one Lord referring to Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, there was one God and Father of us all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul is emphasizing, I believe here in one sense, maybe a little bit subtly, that the Christian unity that we experience is actually patterned after the unity of God himself. God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, listen, the Trinity, I understand, is, is very challenging for our minds to fully grasp, and no analogy or word picture does it justice. One God eternally existing in three persons. Each person is fully God. Three persons, one essence. You get it? It's hard to understand, listen, but it's not a contradiction, we're not speaking of three gods here. We're speaking of one God. And, and again, I get that this is not easy for us to understand, but if I could appeal to uh, our limited human uh, knowledge and finiteness, allow me to do so for a moment, wouldn't we expect that when it comes to God? Like, can we all just acknowledge that we have limits to our understanding in a lot of different areas in life? 
why then would we be afraid to admit that we have limits to our understanding of almighty, infinite, transcendent God? Doesn't it actually make sense that there are things about God that we would be hard-pressed to figure out and understand, and some things that are virtually impossible to grasp? If there is a God, would we not expect Him to be beyond the limits of our understanding in so many ways? And by the way, the reality that God is beyond us ought not to lead us to confusion and frustration, but to wonder, awe, and praise. You know, Jesus in John 17 Verse 22 through 23 said these words. He said, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus in his prayer prays to the Father four times. He prays that we would be one. And he says that our unity should be a reflection of his unity as he and the Father are one, so that the world would see and know. Why would our unity show the world God's love for them? Because a unified church shows off the reconciling power of the gospel in a world that is divided because of sin. We are united by God himself, but we see here in these verses that the other four ones that Paul speaks of here remind us of what God has done for us. There is one baptism. This is potentially an allusion to water baptism, but more importantly, it points to the baptism of the Spirit into one body. It's what the water baptism represents, that we are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are washed and cleansed and united to his death, burial, and resurrection. There is one faith, our response to the gospel a turning from sin and a trusting in Jesus as Lord. But this likely speaks not of our initial personal trust in the Lord, but of the faith, the body of doctrine or the body of truth that we have embraced and live by. There is one body, one church, one family that we have been adopted into, that we are embraced in with one another. And there is one hope, a secure future in Jesus Christ. You see, it's the object of unity that matters. And the stronger the unifying object, the stronger the unity. Politics, sports, even family, nothing, listen, nothing is stronger than Jesus. You know, we're not unified by obsessing about unity. If we obsess about unity and focus on unity for unity's sake, that's going to end in division. We are unified by focusing on Jesus. He is the one who unifies our hearts and minds, and we are called to maintain that unity that Christ purchased together. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. You know, this really is a call to fix our gaze upon Jesus. And this is why the Lord's table is the regular practice in the life of the church. It's one of the most fundamental unifying features in the the family of God. Right here when we look at the table, the, the symbolism of the body and blood of Jesus Christ is the thing that unites us together in one body. encourage you now just to bow before the Lord and prepare your hearts. Whatever unity we might hope for in the church body comes only because of Christ's body that was broken for us. For we all partake of the one bread, Jesus said, Christ's body that was broken for us. It's often said that blood is thicker than water, talking about the unifying reality of family bonds. But listen, if that's true, then there is no blood that is thicker than the blood of Jesus poured out for us. Whatever peace and unity we have is a result of the forgiveness that's granted because of his shed blood. So this morning we're going to have our elders come to the table here. We're going to break this bread. I want to invite us to walk together up to the front in unity this morning. 
actively, intentionally contemplating the unity that God has produced in this church family and committing as you walk forward to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's come forward together this morning in unity, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you, Father, that we are one in you. We thank you for your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. We thank you that though sin divides, Jesus unites. We thank you that we can celebrate that together, that first and foremost, Lord, because of your death, because of your sacrifice, we are united to you. And as a result of that, Lord, all other unity we experience flows from that. So may our unity this morning as we rally around the Lord's table, as we rally around our Savior, may it be a powerful testimony to one another and may it, Lord, stir us to be a powerful testimony to the watching world that you loved us, that you sent your Son to die for us, and we love each other because of how you have loved us. Thank you for the cross. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.